we're going to continue in our series in the, the parables of Jesus, or the theology of Jesus, I guess. You know, I hope we think of Jesus, of course, as a tremendous theologian, and probably the wisest man that ever lived, and no doubt the greatest theologian that ever lived. And the wonderful things in the parables to help, to simultaneously help and to hide, right? Remember that in the parables, we see sometimes Jesus hiding very special truths from people, even though they're telling it directly to them. Well, this week we're going to look at uh, another very well-known one, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And I think I know the name of the Pharisee. I'll share that with you a little bit later. This might be a little bit of eisegesis on my part, but um, I think I know. What is eisegesis, by the way, as opposed to exegesis? Someone that's not, you know, a trained academic that doesn't have to put up with learning those words. What's the difference between eisegesis and exegesis? And it has nothing to do with Jesus, except in a tangential way. Susie knows. Go ahead, Susie. Susan knows. Well, exegesis is getting from the scriptures out yes. what it means, and eisegesis is yes. reading into Yes. It. So I'm going to do a little eisegesis later on when it comes to naming the Pharisee. What is that noise? Is that somebody's car? Could we go up and down the street and find that person and have them shut it off? <laughs> so the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee is going to be found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And let's, let's have a word of prayer before we begin that. Father, we would learn from you, we would grow in you, that we would increase in love for one another, that we would find in this parable um, ourselves, above all that we would find you in this parable and that when we leave and we're done studying together this morning we can we can honestly say that it was good to be with the saints amen so luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, seven words or less. What is the main point of this parable? I'm feeling a little gracious this morning, so it can be eight words, but no more than eight. What is the main point of this parable, do you suppose? He thought he was justified by his good works, keeping the law. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, how, how are we justified, right? Is the key to this thing. How are we justified? Let's take a look at the who here. There's a real contrast of two completely different types of people, right? As, as with the rich man and Lazarus we saw last week, Jesus teaches us so much by contrast, doesn't he? It, and we learn a lot when we contrast things because it's very easy for us to see the difference between... Sometimes, even if we don't know the main point, we can learn from the contrast between two people. We just kind of pick it up. We just kind of pick up what, what's, what the point of a thing is just by the way we contrast two things. So, you know, we might watch a really good professional athlete, you know, playing baseball and watch, you know, the average slob like me out there with the guys on a Sunday or something or a Saturday, and you see the difference there. Even if you didn't know what baseball was, you'd probably be able to pick up pretty quick just from observing the contrast. And I think Jesus does that a lot because people tend to pick up, a, and, and in Jesus' time, he always used the element of surprise. Jesus, as a preacher and a teacher, always used the element of surprise because people's and it's easy to surprise people that have wrong conceptions, wrong preconceptions, a wrong idea ahead of time about what exactly is going on. So Jesus, Jesus really used that very well. <clears throat> and Jesus told this parable to a specific audience. Who are they? Who is Jesus telling this parable to? Who in particular is the target of this parable? 
I'll give you a little hint. It's right in the first verse. <laughs> who is this parable for? Some people who trusted in themselves. <laughs> yeah. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's who this parable is for. Interestingly, this parable doesn't seem to follow a particular course of events like so many of the parables do. So the parables, as I, I mentioned last time, Jesus would often give a parable in response to something way out of line that the Pharisees were saying or that, this, or that somebody had misunderstood. And so Jesus would give the parable at that moment as they took that teaching opportunity. But in this particular case, this one seems to just come out of nowhere. Okay? Because we just had before this the parable of the persistent widow okay, and the unrighteous judge. I mean, so just because the word righteous, unrighteous shows up, that doesn't really make a connection. He talks about the common kingdom before that. It, it just isn't real obvious. That Jesus is coming out of, uh, he's just coming out of left field with this parable. Okay? But they trusted that they were righteous in and of themselves. Now, what is, what is meant by righteous here? What, what does it mean that they thought of themselves as righteous? Who are these, what does Jesus mean when he says, he, 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 he treated, who, 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 I'm sorry, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous? What does he mean by that? Yes, Susan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and so in their minds, righteousness meant following the letter of the law. Okay, Mark. People today would say, "I'm all set." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if they would even make a connection. Or it's not even a moral connection now, is there? Really? At least, at least here, I think with Jesus, there's a moral connection. There's a there's a point of re- frame of reference. But gee, not so much. Pleasing to God, that God was yeah. going to accept him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think those are the main things that they in and of themselves are pleasing to God and by means of the law. Right? And I think they, they got that impression because they were doing well. Yes. Quote unquote, in, in, uh, in contemporary situation. Yes. And we're going to see Jesus use the word justified later on in this parable, but justification and righteousness are very closely related. They have some of the same semantic origins, in fact. Justification and righteousness are very closely related, and I'll mention that a few times as we're going through. It does not mean to just be ethically sound. Bailey writes, the righteous person is not the one who observes a particular code of ethics, but rather a person or community granted a special relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. So it is not, as so many people... There is a... Okay, so there's a flavor of this in terms of acting righteously, but even that, if we understand it truly biblically, we'll come up with, if we're not careful, the term righteousness can become a very effective tool in a legalistic setting. Okay? God's righteousness means His saving acts in history. When we talk about God's righteousness in the Old Testament, we're not talking about God's... We're not necessarily talking about God's ethics. It's very difficult to talk about... God's ethical or God's morality since everything derives from Him. It isn't as if we can look at God and say that God is righteous as if there's some standard of righteousness that God attains to. We know what righteousness is because we know God. And if we and we don't have time for this, but if we were to do a real thorough study on righteousness and, just, and justification in the Old Testament, you would see not only the similarity but what they meant. Oftentimes the term justification, which with many words has its understanding in the context Justification often means the deliverance from exile. That term is often used by Isaiah, for example, in discussing the, the return from exile of the Babylonian captives. So there's a lot of sort of exit, new exodus and exile thought that goes into the terms justification and righteousness, which I don't want to get too bogged down in. But that was sort of the understanding of righteousness. Not just, oh, he's a righteous person, as if to say that that means that he, he behaves well. Okay, it is in many ways the, the the Pharisees' sense of themselves being in right relationship with God. Matthew five, verses eighteen to twenty, and I'm going to contrast this or compare this with Romans chapter three, twenty to twenty-two. So Matthew chapter five, verses eighteen to twenty, and, and some of you uh, know this verse. That's fine, and some of you don't, and that's fine. <coughs> Sorry, I've got my little Bible today and the pages are a little... Like... <clears throat> Jesus says here, 
for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is meant by that? What does Jesus mean when he says, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven? What do you suppose that means? Yes. Well, they had an outward righteousness that mm-hmm. was <coughs> governed by the appearance of men and mm-hmm. how they appeared before men, mm-hmm. rather than Jesus is speaking of an internal righteousness. Mm-hmm. You can see that back in the text that in Luke 18, mm-hmm. the, the mention of humility at the very end of the mm-hmm. text. Yeah, Tony. I was thinking in the verse we were looking in that first, there's an and there. Righteousness and contempt for others, mm-hmm. which to me means that they're thinking that all others are not righteous. Oh, they definitely think and, that. And we'll the, see that in a minute. And the actuality is that it's the opposite yeah. of what they think. Yeah, yeah, and Jesus. And so we see that again in, in what you just read. Yep, yeah. and Jesus brings that little surprise in later as well when he talks about that. So yeah, to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, it certainly doesn't mean... Now the Pharisees, let's face it, they were, we'll talk about it in a minute, they were pretty upstanding people, Gary. Philippians 2, 9. Let's just read 9. Paul says, Not having a righteousness of my own right. through the law, mm-hmm. but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. a righteousness mm-hmm. which is of God by faith. Yep. So, so we can say what it is, but what is that righteousness? We can say it's an eternal righteousness versus an external righteousness. We can say the righteousness of God that comes from the law. But again, what does that term? We're using the term, but we're not defining the term. I fully understand. What is righteousness, Barry? The right standing with God. Yeah, yeah, to be in right. Yeah, I guess you could take it right out of that. Uh, it is to be in right relationship with God. Okay? And we can even go back to Genesis 15, 6, where it talks about uh, God's talking to Abraham, saying God believed Abraham believed God and it was credited to his righteousness. And people act as if so often that means, well, he was forgiven of his sin. And there's no mention of sin whatsoever in that. That has nothing to do with Abraham's forgiveness, I would argue. That has nothing to do with the fact that Abraham believed God after God told him, you're going to be the father of many nations, etc. And therefore, it was a credit to him as righteousness. Certainly, forgiveness is going to be bound up in that. But basically what that meant is Abraham, sort of his response to God's invitation into the covenant, God's was to affirm it. Was to enter into covenant with God that way. And then as you know, God went on to completely fulfill and do the covenant all by himself. Abraham had nothing to do with the covenant. So I, I think that sometimes we can have a misunderstanding that continues to inform our sense of what a word means. And I think it's hard to make a case that in Abraham's case, Abraham believed God and therefore was forgiven of his sin. Okay, if we're going to consider a reckoned as righteous, okay, I don't think it has that particular meaning in that. I just don't. I don't see. It. Certainly, it's included in that in terms of, you know, relationship with God includes God in some way dealing with that sin. Because in order to be in relationship with God, that has to be dealt with. In, in some, in this. In some element, it, there's some justification involved there, is there not? In, in the righteousness, there seems to be some justification yes. attributed to Abraham. Yes. Yeah. Result. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the righteousness does have. You, you get the idea of forgiveness in other places in Scripture, in terms of righteousness. The two are much more closely related. We just don't see it there with Abraham. There's no talk of sin before. There's no talk of sin after. Yes. Paul said very. Clearly, he says, uh, "You are those who measure yourselves by yourselves and compare yourselves with yourselves, and yeah. you lack understanding." Yeah, there's a there's a great verse, especially in this in the context of this parable, mm-hmm. Romans chapter three, and this is similar to the Philippians verse Gary just shared. Romans chapter three, verse twenty to twenty-two, mm-hmm. and this is where it's very helpful. I think I've mentioned this before. Anytime you think you have a certain understanding of Scripture, read it back into the Scripture that you're reading and see if it still fits. So, if ethics is a code of behavior, if we're to understand righteousness only as from this code of behavior, this code of ethics, let's try to read that into this passage after we read it the way it actually is the first time. So, 3.20-22, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So, if we're going to think of ethics, uh, you know, righteousness as being good behavior or right behavior, try to read that into it. Okay? Uh, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, fu- his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the right behavior of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The right behavior of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It doesn't make any sense. There's something going on. You see, again here, the very relation, close relationship between justification and righteousness are used together because those words are very closely related. And again, I think a whole study could be done on that. Yes? Would you say then that um, righteousness and, and being justified can only be acquired in a way, I, I don't really want to use that word, mm-hmm. but a person can only have it if, if the, it stems from what Christ did. Yes, it can only come from God. It can only come from and, God. And not yeah. anyone else's. Yeah, it can only come from God. It, it, it can't possibly come from... There is no righteousness. There is no right standing with God to be had. And, and there is no... So, uh, again, it's, it is a very complex term. And I know that uh, in different contexts it does have different mean, different nuances. But certainly, a righteous person's response... Uh, a person might be said to be righteous in their response to God's sort of, you know, faith... It's sort of a righteous response to a righteous God, but even to that's granted to us. Yes, Gary. Just a, a point that you made about Abraham believed God; it was counted to him for righteousness. And you had said that that doesn't mean uh, forgiveness of sin. Right. In, but I, I'm going to challenge that a little bit in saying explicitly it doesn't, but implicitly it does because. Right, Romans 4 mm-hmm. says even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes mm-hmm. righteousness without yep. work saying mm-hmm. blessed are they whose iniquities mm-hmm. are forgiven and mm-hmm. whose sins are covered blessed mm-hmm. is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin yeah but I think that the difference there is uh, in, in Psalm 51 where David originally used that there was specific that's specifically about sin in the context of Abraham, the context is not sin at all. It's much more covenantal. Yeah, I would just so I think there's a secondary, you know, the, yeah. it, it, but it is not the primary meaning as far as I'm concerned in that Genesis text. There's something much deeper going on there. And I think that's important because so often we think of covenant of God, we think about new covenant. It's easy to think about just being forgiven of sin and sort of not going to hell. And we miss the whole point of forgiveness in the first place. The whole point of forgiveness in the first place is not avoidance of punishment. But that's all it is. <laughs> Great! You know? But that, that citation is from Psalm 32, not... I'm sorry, 32, uh-huh. Um, and I say, it, it, it's not explicit, mm-hmm. but it's implicit. Yeah, I just don't think Paul's using those in the same way. I don't think Paul's making the same point in both cases. Because he's making a... Uh, He's building a case for what uh-huh. righteousness is. Yeah, I think he's building he's a case. Using David and Abraham right in the same context. Yeah, we have to use. We have to understand the the whole context of Romans in the first place, and what's going on between the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul is addressing, and what it means to be in covenant with God. But I don't think he's making the same point about Abraham that he's making about David. Both are important points, but I don't think he's making the same point in both cases. Yeah. I could be wrong. There's two halves of this transaction going on. One is sin is removed. Mm-hmm. And then his righteousness is added. Mm-hmm. And so I think in a way what we're talking about is the the main point is the righteousness being added. But the righteousness can't be added unless the sin is mm-hmm. removed first. Yeah, and it's important again. Uh, the term righteousness, I don't want to overcomplicate this either. But the term righteousness has different nuances in different specific contexts. For, for example, we talk about God's righteousness and some Old Testament uh, acts that clearly means God's salvation acts. His, his saving actions is God's righteousness. And I probably should have taken down a verse or two from some of the Old Testament verses that I have in mind. Yes? Yes. Something that's impossible. Yes, that's a very helpful comment. It really is. Because in this verse, it says the Pharisees prayed about himself. Yes. He's just looking at that's his thing. 
That's very helpful because when God dealt with Abraham, and Abraham, Abraham had to come to believe that despite the deadness of his body, God could accomplish something. Okay, God could do in his 90-year-old body and in Sarah's uh, body what was impossible physically speaking, <laughs> naturally speaking, to happen. Uh, people don't have uh, women in particular don't have childbearing uh, physiologically. That, that doesn't happen beyond menopause. So, and of course, you know, before then, if there are other issues, but so Abraham believed God, and that's what sort of made the whole Abrahamic covenant sort of God God using that to to make that whole thing possible. That's something outside of yourself. He starts that with Abraham. So that's a very good point. Same thing with forgiveness of sin, by the way. And maybe that's where the real closeness of the relationship helps us to understand. Forgiveness of sin is a very difficult concept to understand. It really is. How that can possibly happen outside of God initiating you. God even has to initiate. God has to bring us to a place where we're willing to look to be forgiven. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Yes? I just going to say... I agree with Gary in the nuanced aspect because repentance is the fruit of justification. Mm-hmm. And we see that in Luke 18. Yeah. The fruit of justification is one's sole dependence upon God, placing mm. faith in His righteousness, right. not His own. Right. And therefore, it's implied that repentance is mm-hmm. the fruit of it. Yep. Because that's the attitude of the tax collector. Uh, tax, yeah, the tax collector right. in Luke 18. Yep. And again, I just my, my, my sole purpose in bringing this out is justification and... Uh, righteousness are used in a variety of ways that are related, but the particulars of those, you can't just pour the full meaning into each particular each time that it's used, because each particular is intended to teach God's people something either about covenant or release. Just just another thing, this is a little bit of an offshoot of what we're talking about, but just for the sake of the majority of people here possibly, um, once we get saved, Hmm? we have the righteousness of God. Yep. Receiving the righteousness of God is receiving salvation. Mm-hmm. And it's a permanent, yes. uh, permanent state that yes. we are in yes. for the rest of our lives mm-hmm. and for all eternity. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yes, and we I, are then in covenant with God. And there's nothing that we can add to that. We'll take away from. Punctilia, but on the other hand, there, there are expectations mm-hmm. of sanctification in the life of someone who's justified. Mm-hmm. So justification is... Of those who have God's righteousness, mm-hmm. but yet there's expectation that we live up to the righteousness. Not not a, not that we have to achieve it for merit, but it's built into us. There's a, a, a stimulation that's created within us, mm-hmm. like it says that uh, that that uh, we might fulfill the righteous standards of the law. If how is that accomplished? It's by the new nature that's given to us. Well. If we could fulfill the standards of the law of Christ, that would make that distinction because we are not saved to fulfill the standards of the Old Testament. We're not, we're not saved to fulfill the standards of the Mosaic law. Right. I would just make that distinction. That's not the goal of our salvation because right. there's, there's a righteousness that far exceeds that as Brother Todd pointed out. Did Gary actually suggest a new name for uh, Larissa's Pontilia? Pontilia Fuller. According to your prayer, Todd, when we met as a group, when the uh, when the church leadership met a couple of weeks ago, that would be a name for a baby that screams much, in, in keeping with your prayer request. You guys weren't there, but 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 Todd informed them that he's praying for a real screamer. <laughs> because there's much more to this. There's much more to this tax collector and to this Pharisee of just not being considered. You know. Uh, the tax collector. He's he's he, he wants something much more than just forgiveness. Yes. My practical point, though, is that we shouldn't be satisfied. Well, that's not the right word. God's satisfied with the righteousness that's imputed to us, and we're accepted in the beloved, one hundred percent. But that doesn't mean that we should be lackadaisical. That we should be careless, carefree. That that you know, shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. That sort of mentality. Yeah. In other words, yeah. we can abuse the idea of our security in Christ by having His. And, and if we do, me. yes, I do. I do follow you. But if we do, I, I honestly believe the work of the Spirit in us. When we use the word expectation, I would use the word expectation the same way that I would say when I drop alka-seltzer in water, I expect it to effervesce. I expect it to bubble. 
If it doesn't, it's probably not Alka-Seltzer. You know what I mean? And I think that, I think that to some extent, when we say we, God expects us to act a certain way, I agree with that. And maybe, maybe like you, I, I really look at words, and, and maybe you know, I, I can end up probably maybe confusing you too much by getting overly analytical on the word. But the expectation isn't. Um, it's the norms, so yeah, to speak, yeah. for a child of God. Wait, and it isn't. It isn't so much. I've done this for you. Now you do this for me. No, it, it, it's not to achieve exactly. more righteousness or acceptability. Exactly. That's not the point. God is so gracious that He initiates the covenant and He completes the covenant, and the Pharisee doesn't see this. So, <clears throat> good discussion. And if it if it doesn't, you know, fully wrap your head around it. No big deal. There's a there's a point in this panel to be made. It, <clears throat> I do believe, as <clears throat> um, although he was speaking about preaching, I do believe that. Uh, oh my goodness! Why his name just completely escaped me? Who's the great Anglican preacher that was a doctor Lloyd first? Jones. Yeah, uh, Lloyd Jones. <clears throat> Martin Lloyd Jones. You know, you should remember when you're preaching. For example, you should preach to the. You should be able to make it understand or leave it to the handmaiden. Okay, now I don't even know if we have handmaidens anymore, but he, he was making an important point. But at the same time, I think in a in a, in a Sunday class, an adult Sunday class, that there's something there for um, for the people that like to chew the real chewy part of the grisly steak, and there are those that you know just sort of want it. So I think there's something there for everyone. So you have to be willing to sort of tolerate those things which you might not fully grasp in, in an attempt to. <laughs> Give everybody part of the meal. It's a bounty. The Word of God is a bounty, isn't it? Amen? So, alright. <clears throat> it is that which makes the relationship with God. At the end of the day, we're still talking about what is most critical in all of this. <clears throat> Whether we're talking about justification, righteousness, the important thing is relationship with God. And I'll point that out again in a few minutes. The justified person is one who has entered relationship with God. It, it has to do with the whole salvation experience. So it's not just an imputation of righteousness, although it includes that. It isn't just an acquittal. It's not just a declaration of not guilty. It's much more than that. It's the whole thing. It's the whole salvation experience. Tom Holland writes, justification in his book, Romans, The Divine Marriage. Justificate. You want a great, great book on Romans. You want to read that one. That will challenge you. Uh, justification is more than a declaration. It is the activity of God that is focused on the rescue of a people from enmity with himself achieved through the death of Jesus. It's a great quote. It's, it's to be delivered from enmity. So it doesn't just mean the enmity is, is removed. This has to do with relationship with God. That enmity is, is removed from us. So it's much more profound than just being declared not guilty, okay? You can be declared not guilty in a courtroom and still be very much sort of at odds with uh, the, the state or the government, okay? You can even be sort of acquitted of a particular crime that maybe you even committed or a crime that you didn't commit, but you've done other things. You're not in right relation with the state by any stretch of the imagination. You've not been found guilty of something, perhaps, of the particular thing. This is much bigger, Okay, the state could never examine you and fully find out whether or not you're in conformity to all that the state has in terms of its laws and regulations. It's much bigger than that. It's to be in harmony with God. It's, it's that state of shalom with God. It's that state of oneness. It's a, oh, if we could really get our arms around what it means to be united to Christ. And Paul struggled with it. He says, I want to know Christ. And we said, wait a minute. Okay, I just spent... So say you just went on retreat and you just spent a year just studying the epistles of Paul. And you walk, you're getting towards the end of it and you come across this thing where Paul says, I want to know Christ. And he said, oh my gosh, I just read all the stuff that Paul wrote in these epistles. He doesn't know them? Yeah, he does. But Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection I want to, and the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to be conformed unto His death if somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow! There's a lot there. You'll never exhaust it. And we'll never exhaust the meaning of justification and righteousness. I read a great little blog this morning that it was on Twitter. And it was, why is the gospel so hard to define? And this guy made a point about seven reasons, I can't remember what they were, why the gospel is so hard. He said, you ask the average Christian, what's the gospel? And sometimes we feel bad because we can't give like a precise answer. They go, oh, no, I, I can't give a full answer as to what the gospel is. And he says, 
And he says, you know, I think this, this one point stuck with me, right, hon? We were looking at this this morning. He says, the gospel is it's like an ocean. He says, you know, a little child knows what it's like to go on the beach and play in the waves and play in the sand. But none of science has yet fully grasped what goes on in the depths of the ocean, you know? I mean, the submarines can only get so far down before they you know, implode. There are things that we just can't possibly begin to understand. He said the gospel is like that. And he makes a very excellent point as well about the gospel. He said, you know, my... He says, I, I explained the gospel to my kids when they were very little and they got it. And yet, I wrote a 100,000 plus word doctoral thesis on the gospel. And so he was just kind of... You can't exhaust this thing. You can't talk enough about it. Mm-hmm. So, I just add that to any sense that you might ever get in a Sunday school lesson or even a message that's preached that there's something you can't fully grasp and you don't feel like you walked away from it fully getting it or you, you can't fully explain something to someone else I can't either uh, Alistair Begg can't either John Piper can't either it's not supposed to be something that's exhausted it's supposed to be this everlasting gobstopper right of gospel does anyone not know what the everlasting gobstopper is by the way you don't know what the everlasting gobstopper is, Gary? Oh, wow. everlasting gospel. Well, it is. Well, in, in, somebody explain to him what the everlasting gobstopper is. Does the young lady here know? Do you know what the everlasting... What's the, would you please tell Pastor Gary... What is your name? Janae. Uh, Hi, Janae. Would you please explain to Pastor Gary what an everlasting gobstopper is? Yes. Yes. That's right. You can just keep on sucking it and sucking it and it never gets any smaller. It just keeps on giving more and more flavor. It just never gets smaller, right? It just lasts and lasts. And this is the thing. This is why the gospel is hidden in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> this is the thing. No, 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 no. This is the thing that uh, Slugworth, right? Isn't he the guy that wants to steal the recipe for the everlasting gobstopper? He's the guy that wants to steal it and take it away. Okay. And at the very end, the little boy, Willy Wonka, uh, Willy Wonka, all these kids can't get the chocolate factory because, you know, they're all selfish jerks in their own way. But this little boy, at the end, he has the gobstopper, and he could leave and give it to the bad guy, and his grandfather encouraged him to do so. But no, instead he goes back, and he puts it down on the table, and Willy Wonka is just so elated because now he has somebody that he can entrust his chocolate factory to. Anyway, <laughs> the gospel in Willy Wonka. Wow. It's everywhere. Waxing eloquent this it, morning. It is, it is the, the gospel, the right, it's the everlasting gobstopper of relationship with God. Yes. I have a response to this. Yes. To maintain my job. Yes. The Bible says, I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel. Amen, brother. With a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment has come and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains. Amen. Amen. And that will... How can you exhaust that? You'll never exhaust it. You'll never exhaust it. Amen. That's for the handmaiden in me. So, Luther says, the master and prince, the Lord, he says this of justification, the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler and the judge over all kinds of doctrines is the doctrine of justification. It is the thing that separates genuine <coughs> covenant relationship with God from every other phony thing. It is the thing. It is the thing. It's why we disagree with Rome. It's why we disagree with Seventh-day Adventists. It's why we disagree with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's why we disagree with Mormons. It's why we disagree with Muslims. It's why we disagree with... Not because we just disagree, because we have a body of truth. God has chosen to reveal how to be in relationship with Him. And we can stand there and think that somehow (coughs) it could be otherwise. Oh, how good is God this morning? Mm Mm-hmm. And so this is important to understand and grasp the importance of this parable, which I have to get through today because I'm not here next week. I am the biggest distraction to myself, aren't I? But, but you bring that out in me. It does. Theology should be exciting, shouldn't it? Look, I think of this stuff while I'm studying. I don't just stand before you and just say something about Willy Wonka. That's what comes to my mind when I study sometimes. 
Anyway, what's the most ironic part of verse 9? What's the part of verse 9 that just makes you say, this one's a no-brainer. What about verse 9 tells you this is not a righteous man? And you already touched on it. Tony. He just thought he was better than that person. Yeah, Yeah, specifically. What does it say? What's the specific part of the verse say? Yeah, that's right. He held others in contempt. He's righteous, yet he holds others in contempt. How is that? How is that even possible? That is a total oxymoron. That those two things cannot exist together. You can't. How can you be a, a righteous person and look down on others with contempt? What is it to treat someone with contempt? It's to look down on them. It's to despise them. It's to. It's to just. Um, it's to set them at naught. It's to ignore. It's to count them as nothing. Yes. Instead of comparing these people that he looks down on mm-hmm. against what God requires, mm-hmm. he looks at them at what he has. Yes. Yep. So he's comparing them yep. with himself and not with God. Yep. Isn't that Satan's primary sin? Yeah. yeah. Pride? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pride and all that comes with it. So, uh, two men praying, right? So, both go up to the temple, right? That's the best place to pray. I mean... In Judaic in Jewish thought, I mean, the temple was the very presence of God. That's where he was. I mean, you wanted to pray. That was the place to go. And so the two of them go there. So they certainly have that in common with the very presence of God. But then look at the contrast. Okay, the Pharisee in those days was a very highly regarded person. He really was. He was. He, they were the leaders. They were looked up to. They were admired. One guy made the point, look, there weren't a lot of them. There were maybe like 3,000 Pharisees out of the whole population. That's not a lot. So they had a place of esteem and a place of regard, okay? Uh, they were the, the sort of senior pastors of old covenant thought, if you will. All right, so it, in, they just they had the stellar reputation in the society. And then you have the tax collector, right? The tax collector, <coughs> and what does Scripture teach about the tax collectors? We could go through many of these things when we refer to tax collectors. The tax collectors are despised. I mean, the Pharisees would say, this man, he, he, sits, why, why does your, he sits with tax collectors and sinners, Okay. Another another scripture says even tax collectors were coming to John the Baptist. You know, even those. You know, when you use the word even, there's a reason for that, right? Even tax collectors come. So there are several verses that tell us all about tax collectors, and you know, they're just basically the dregs. And they were these were not good guys. Tax collectors were not good guys. They were Jews who worked from Romans, who worked for the Romans in collecting taxes, and they were told, hey, anything over and above what's actually due. You can pocket that, okay? So you get a few extra, get a few extra denarii out of them or whatever. That's yours, okay? So not only did they get paid by Rome, but they were ripping off their brothers. And Leviticus six, chapter two, verses five tells us you don't do that. You don't deceit, you don't defraud people. You don't cheat them. And if you do, you got to pay them back plus an additional fifth. So it's, this is one I said. Your comparison really is the contrast between sort of the president and a prostitute. The Pharisee stands by himself. That's what it says. There are a couple of different translate ways people translate this. Some say he prayed thus to himself. I think the best thing that fits, knowing what a Pharisee is, is he stands by himself. That is, he won't come into contact with the Gentiles, or that are on the outside, but he won't come into contact with sinners. So he's got to stand off by himself. He's got to stand off by himself so that he doesn't even touch them. And the text says that he prays, although ironically it's not much of a prayer, Although he does give God credit that he's not an extortionist. That's a good thing, isn't it? God, I thank you that I'm not an extortionist. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I thank you that... um, And he gets way off when he says I'm not like other men. I think we can... I mean, I can thank God that I'm not a drug addict anymore. Okay? I can thank God that I'm not... um, And I can really mean that you know, anything that I have that in any way glorifies God... I can thank God for, but that's that's not what's going on here. He's just, I mean, why would he thank God for that? Because he thinks of himself as being in relationship with God and the others as not being in relationship with God. He thinks to the extent that he follows the law, which he has made an idol out of, okay? The law was never intended to, to be idolized. The law was never intended to be used the way they use it. Clearly, he wants to be heard by others. He's praying aloud up there. I thank you that I'm... He may even be giving a little sermon in his prayer. Isn't that annoying when people do that? Have you ever heard people give a little sermon in their prayer? 
Don't do this at unbelieving Thanksgiving and Christmas meals. Lord, we thank You for this food and that You sacrificed Your only Son, Jesus Christ, to give birth to sinners. And I don't know. There's something awkward about doing that, I think, in, in unbelievers. Give thanks to God if you're going to give thanks to God. Show the unbeliever how God is precious to you or whatever. But I'm not saying you can never do it, but be very careful not to give little sermons in your prayers, your public prayers. Because who are you serving doing that? Really? We've got to get over ourselves sometimes. He goes above and beyond the law. He fasts. You know, the law only required you to fast on the Day of Atonement. Okay, but Mr. Wonderful here, he fasts two times in the week. Furthermore, he doesn't just tithe on his increase. He tithes on everything. I give tithes on everything. The, the produce that he had was already tithed by the ones that raised it. But no, he got the produce, bought it, and gave a tenth. He didn't have to do that. Well, if you want to do that, great. But he went way above and beyond. This is why I say I know the name of this Pharisee. And this is Isa Jesus. His name is Gaston. Okay? The Pharisee's name is Gaston. Now, if you know, if you know Beauty and the Beast, again, I'm sorry, brother. You, get a, you know what? Let's come hang out. We'll just watch Disney for a weekend. <laughs> There's so much in there. There's so much fodder. Uh, so, um, so I, I won't get too much into it, but the whole Gaston thing is, right? He, he says things. So this guy, Gaston, he's... This is Beauty and the Beast and he's in the tavern and he's feeling down about himself so his friends lift him up and he starts singing wonderful things about himself like, you know, no one's slick as Gaston, no one's quick as Gaston, no one's neck is incredibly thick as Gaston's, right? <laughs> he goes on and on. Uh, no one matches uh, hits like Gaston, matches wits like Gaston. He goes on, When I was a lad, I ate four dozen eggs every morning to help me get large. And now that I'm grown, I eat five dozen eggs, so I'm almost as big as a barge. And this whole song is about himself. That's this guy. Right? No one fasts like Gaston. No one tithes like Gaston. <laughs> no one stands up and prays to himself like Gaston. Yes. Two, two things. Is, is your best friend Aurora? Yes. <laughs> She's one of them. And, and you may have outdone Richard Ives mentioning Dr. Seuss. Yes! <laughs> it's okay. That's the kid in me. So now we see, uh, now we see uh, the, the tax collector standing off by himself. I mean, he just feels as though he doesn't deserve to be near anybody. He's in shame. He's in sort of the self-deprecating. Uh, um, he, he's not doing... And again, he likely heard sort of the blowhard Pharisee just going on and on about himself and probably felt alienated additionally by that because the Pharisee said, I'm glad that I'm not like this tax collector. Oof. You know? Um... I remember reading a book once by a guy that was, uh, he was a recovered, uh, God had, had rescued him uh, from all his sin, including alcoholism. And, uh, but he could remember the days of his alcoholism when he was walking by this lady, he was just you know, sitting down in the street all drunk and in his own waist. And this lady walked by and a little kid looked at him and was going to say hi to him. And the mother said, no, 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 no. And she just kept on... He says that shame that I felt at that point, you know. And I wonder the tax collector probably felt that way when the Pharisee stood there. And he's already feeling terrible about himself. How do we know that? Because it says he beat his breast. And the only other place we see that in all of Scripture, particularly all in the New Testament, is at the crucifixion of Jesus. When people saw what happened, they beat their breasts. And so, that's where this guy's mind was. That 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 in, So intense was his sort of difficulty with himself and his his um, uncomfortableness like the Pharisee again he begins his prayer with God and he acknowledges he's a sinner and he's desperate and he has no sense of bringing something to God it's sort of this just as I am without one plea what a great song right just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark spot one dark blot and he says be merciful to me very interesting word, this verb. The verb form, this is the verb form, this mer- the verb form of mercy seat. Okay? So when he says be merciful, this is the verb form of mercy seat. Well, why is that significant? What is the mercy seat? Quickly, it is what? Where do we find the mercy seat in the Old Testament cultic practices? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the lid that covers the ark. Okay? The mercy seat, so called, is the lid that covers the ark. Okay, you'll find that in Exodus. You'll find it in... And they believe that God dwelt between the cherubim. Okay, if you go to Isaiah, Hezekiah is making his prayer, O God who dwells between the cherubim. Okay, and in Exodus, God says, when you put the lid of the ark on, you 
put an put the cherubim on either side, the golden cherubim, and the wings just about touch. And there God says, "I will be." Okay, and from there God looks down on the the ark, in which was contained the. And when he looked down on that, he had to pass judgment on people. But on the day of atonement, what happened at the mercy seat? Blood covered. Yes. Blood covered. Yeah, right. Blood sprinkled the mercy seat, so God would look and see the substitution. He would see the penalty for that. So that's so. So this asks, you know, does this tax collector maybe maybe he remembers something about scripture? Okay, that's the that's the phraseology that he's using. Okay, so the the, the covenant of the laws inside. So God could commune and bless with His people when that blood was there. So maybe in His upbringing, His Jewish upbringing, He remembered this. But this is key because I think especially for young people, you grow up learning things and some of you will get away from the faith and you'll just wander away from it. Okay, and it's happened. I've seen it happen in my own home. They have wandered far away. But maybe at some point, they'll remember that there's a Savior that there's someone that can forgive all the, somebody that can put me back in relationship with God again someone who was gracious enough to me to have my parents instruct me all about his goodness and try to model his love to me and I squandered it for a long time but maybe they'll be standing before God someday saying have mercy on me it's because they'll know that there's a Jesus and they'll know that Jesus came and made it possible for us to love God and to be loved by God and to love one another and our whole problem at that point is we don't love God and we don't love one another and we don't feel God's love. And when that happens, life has no meaning and no purpose whatsoever. Um, the justified man. He was justified, Jesus said. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. And that t- takes in, this one goes to his house in right relationship with God. This is the one that has a real relationship with God. Okay? Um, to receive God's righteousness is to receive what you said, but it's, it's not just to receive His... It's not just to receive God's ethical code. It's not to say we're as good as God. It's not to say that. Okay? It's, it's so much more than that. Yes! I hope that in my life I, 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 I bear the fruit of that. But again, are, you, are we genuine sort of Alka-Seltzer? You know what I mean? The difference between dropping an Alka-Seltzer and a Necco wafer and a glass of water will, will show you which one's uh, going to make you better. Which one's just going to turn the color of the water. In some way, uh, you know, if you go back and you read, again, go back to the Psalms. and said, who shall ascend the holy hill? Mm-hmm. Now, who can go into God's holy temple? Who can mm-hmm. ascend the holy... Mm-hmm. He whose hands are just, are clean, right? Mm-hmm. And so in one way, that makes it sound like, well, the Pharisee would be the one. I mean, he's the one that's keeping the law, right? He's the one that's going in there. He's the one that's doing the kinds of things that we do read about in that um, Psalm, Psalm 24. I'm just going to turn quickly to that. I know I'm going a little fast, but next week I won't be here, and I hate to break up a parable by two weeks. So, um, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul what is false and does not swear deceitfully well the, the tax collector has done all of that he has sworn deceitfully he has wrought he has defrauded people he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation he'll receive righteousness such is the generation of those who seek him and I think that's the verse that key verse there that's why I think this applies to the tax collector more than the Pharisee he's the one that can go and ascend the holy hill because he's the one that seeks God sort of not himself He's not looking out for him. He's not doing this Pharisee thing. So he's uh, coming to God sort of in God's terms. So the, the rest of uh, you know this verse 14 here comes into play in that sort of same spirit. Right? That's the humble part. You know, those that humble themselves will be exalted. What does that mean? Well, we've got to keep it in the parable. It doesn't just mean that well, people that aren't proud, well, great, God is going to exalt them. There's a very specific... It's relationship with God. It's relationship with God. It's everything that matters, by the way. It's relationship with God. Relationship with God is for the humble. Those of a contrite spirit. Those that just know that God is so holy and above and and clean. Uh, I would recommend, if you have time, read through Isaiah chapter 66, 1 through 6. I bet you that's where Jesus got the idea for this parable. I bet you Jesus thought much upon this. Read that and see if it isn't so for you. But a, a couple of a couple of uh, 
Just final closing points of application. Beware of taking sin lightly by comparing yourself with others. We can, this is very subtle. Uh, and also dismissing your own sins by balancing what you think is good. So, we as a, as a Christian community rightly stand against the culture's insistence that we redefine sexuality in the way that it's being redefined. But oftentimes, we the church also sound like a group of bullies that are judging in ways that we shouldn't. We, we, we can sound unkind. Meanwhile, you know, we might be watching whatever we're doing or, you know, engaging lustful thoughts, you know, whatever it may be. Be very careful. You're not any closer to God because you're not homosexual. You're in a relationship with God because of what God has done. So we just, we have to be careful with that. Are we going to sound like loving people as we engage it? We should sound like people that want to rescue sinners. Okay? Not... So we, we need them to know that they're lost, which the Holy Spirit will do, but we want to be there to rescue them. Okay? To help rescue, to be involved in that rescue. So we need to be careful not to compare that way. Because I think subtly that can happen. We can think of all the things we don't do. And when we do that, we're very Pharisaic. The other thing you don't want to say is, boy, I'm glad I'm not like this Pharisee. <laughs> and if you say that, you're very much like this Pharisee. Okay? To know God and to know man. If you know God, you're going to understand better. This, this tax collector knew God far better than the Pharisee did. Far better. He knew he could go to him. He knew what terms he could go to him. He knew how he could be. So get to really continue to know God. And the more you know God, the more you're going to know yourself and understand yourself. Because you're going to see that distinction. And again, know Scripture. It's the only way to know God. It's the only way to know yourself. is to know Scripture. It's everything. This is this is new covenant, old covenant. It's everything. Food. It's 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 knowledge, internal, real, intimate knowledge with God comes from the Scripture. It will be. It is how God sort of communicates the power and the joy and the wonder of covenant with Him. So uh, with that, who who will pray for us this morning? Brother Randy, would you please close for us? Thank you, man. Father, we're thankful for this time, Lord. Help us to um, wrap it and hold it in our hearts that we love you and understand you better and understand ourselves better, Lord. Prepare our hearts for worship, Lord, and be blessed by our worship and all may be exalted in our destiny. Amen. Amen. Thanks.